Good morning, Grace. Good to be here singing with you and worshiping with you, uh, our God who is holy and most worthy of our worship and our praise. Uh, could we bring back a couple of slides to that chorus, Katie, that uh, rescues me from all my failings? Back one more, I believe. found it. Who else could rescue me from my failing? Who else would offer his only son? Who else invites me to call him father? Only a holy God, only my holy God. That's beautiful, and that's really an essence of the gospel, right? And what we're recognizing here is that we are a people who have our lives to some degree out of order, right? We're born with our lives out of order, Yesterday, I went on a grocery run to, for my wife. Uh, we usually do breakfast burritos on Saturday mornings as a family, and there were a few supplies missing from our refrigerator. So I went with a list that my wife texted me, and usually when we go to the grocery store, it's a date for us at this stage in our life. And, and my role is to grab the cart and to just follow her around. And she goes, she knows where everything is, and she pulls it off and puts it in the cart, and I just follow her around like a little puppy, just making sure that everything that she wants gets put into this basket. Uh, so yesterday, I had my cart, and I didn't have my wife. So I'm wandering around that grocery store that I've been in many, many times, and it's like it was the first time I was ever there. I've never really had to go and find... I knew some of the things. There were four things on my list. I needed eggs. Knew where those were. I needed salsa. Had a vague idea of where that was. I needed sausage, and the specific request was that um, it would be turkey sausage. And I needed tortillas. Okay, so... I, we bought these things before. I knew vaguely where I was going. And, and I get down along the meat aisle. Sausage. I'm thinking meat. I'm going to go see the, the meat man. And the meat man is out there looking in this, in this uh, refrigerated meat section. And I'm looking and I see ground turkey and I see ground beef, but I'm not seeing sausage. And he says, are you looking for something? Can I help you? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm looking for turkey sausage. Do you have some of that? Well, I've got ground turkey here. Mm, in the meat counter, we have, we have something sausage. So we went over there and he ends up talking me into something that I didn't want. I didn't go there to buy regular pork sausage, but that's what I bought. Some help this guy was, right? And then I'm wandering around 10 minutes later, still looking and searching. Uh, I still hadn't found the salsa. And, and I, he says, are you still looking for something? And I said, yes, I'm looking for salsa. He said, try the chip aisle. So I went down there, and, and in the chip aisle, there was some salsa but not the kind of salsa that I was looking for. And I knew that we had purchased this salsa in, at this store before. And I ended up finding it way on the other side of the store. And as I'm wandering around, I'm going, who organizes this place? <laughs> this stuff is out of order, at least in the way my mind works, right? And, and I, it was, I was frustrated. I ended up finding everything that I needed and buying something that I didn't need. So maybe that's part of why they disorganize a, a grocery store so that you end up buying more than what you actually went there to get. But our lives can kind of be in that way too, right? Our lives can take on a degree of disorder. And that is something that I have felt 
quite keenly on a regular basis, and maybe, maybe you do too. Maybe you wandered in here this morning knowing that your life is out of order and feeling the pain and the weight of that. Maybe you wandered in here uh, thinking about financial things or thinking about family things or thinking about who knows what else, right? But the common thread is, is that there's something out of order in our lives. And the good news is, is that the passage that we're going to turn to today is going to have a lot to say about God's perfect order. And I, I've titled this sermon, Perfect Order from a Personal God. You see, I, I don't think it's natural for us to think about those two things together. I think it's easy for us to think about God as a God who sets things in perfect order, maybe a little bit more like a drill sergeant who does and rips out commands to keep his little maggots in order, right? But that's not our God. Our God is a personal God, but order matters to him very much. So today, we are going to, we're in week four of our In the Beginning preaching series through the book of Genesis. Uh, if you recall, we started four weeks ago thinking about God creating the cosmos, looking at the grand scheme in Genesis 1. Eric helped us understand this sovereign God, Elohim, the plural form, this God who is the sovereign creator who spoke that and everything that is into being. The week after that, Randy came and helped us think a little bit more about the heavens and the earth, the earth in particular. We, we took our wide-angle lens and we narrowed it down a little bit, and now we're looking at the earth. We're looking at the six days of creation and all of the good things that God made there. And then last week, Kenny helped us recognize that God was a God. When he got done on day six with his creation, like a good artist, he just put, put it down and he, he was done. And he rested. And Kenny did a beautiful job of helping us recognize that we're a people made by God to find our rest in him and that we're really bad at it. Well, today we, we pick up chapter 2 of Genesis and we're going to zoom in a little bit further. Not the cosmos, not the earth, but a specific location on the earth. And there, zooming in on this one place, this place of the garden, we're going to see and understand some perfect order that God set into his creation and how personal a God he is. So I'm going to read Genesis 2, verses 4 through 17. Please open your Bibles and join me there. Genesis 2, beginning at verse 4. I'm going to read that. And as I do, I want you to pay attention. Be listening for things that are repeated. Be listening for words or themes. And on the heels of that, We'll talk about what you hear, and we'll unpack that. And then I've got a, a few points that I would like to drive home about this perfect order that is given by a personal God. Let's unite our hearts in prayer, turn to the text, and have, receive what the Lord has for us today. Heavenly Father, you're a holy God. You're a powerful God. You're a personal God. You're a self-revealing God, and you've preserved for us your word, and we don't take it lightly. In fact, we tremble before you, and we tremble before your word as we open it now and read it. Would you send forth your spirit, give us ears to hear? Would you augment the faith that is there and strengthen it? If some are among us this morning who don't yet have the miracle of faith in their hearts, would you create it? 
Above all, we want to honor you and glorify you uh, by sitting under the authority of your word. So have your way among us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 2, beginning at verse 4. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land that was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So as I read those verses, what did you hear? Were there words that were repeated? Did themes come out to you? What did you hear? The Lord God. Yeah. That's, and that's a new name, right? Um, Moses, as he wrote in chapter 1, it was about God, Elohim. And now he adds to that the Lord God. And he repeats it in these few verses seven times. Seven times he repeats the Lord God. Yes, the, this passage is about the Lord God. What else did you hear? Yes. There's an abundance of God's provision for man, right? Yeah, so the Lord God is actively at work here, and He is an extravagant, abundant, providing God. Is there anything else that you heard? tree of knowledge of good and evil? Well, he, he makes that sound like that's really where I want to go eat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It, it's kind of like kids, right? When you tell them, no, no, I don't want you to do that, then that's all the, thing, the only thing they want to do, right? Well, that, that is not what God had in his heart as he, as he promoted that, but I, I understand that perspective, yeah. Um, as I read through and studied this passage, there, were, there was repetition that sh showed me that what this was about, what, what's on God's mind here. And 
Yeah, the Lord God is repeated seven times. Man is repeated six times. And garden is repeated five times. So in this passage, it's important for us to understand that the Lord God is the one who's at work. All the active verbs in this passage are being performed by the Lord God. And he is working on behalf of the man whom he has entrusted with a very important role in his creation. And specifically, he's placing man inside this location of the garden and there showing man all of his abundant provision for him. So those are kind of the three big rocks. And what we see here is the priorities of our God when he, when he sets this world into perfect order. And as I said, my burden today is that we understand this, this perfect order that God made in his creation because it's not natural for us to see it. Because our only experience of God's creation is in its fallen state. Now God is by his grace at work restoring order in his creation and he's promised to get us there in the end. But our only experience of his creation is one of out of order. And this God is a God who is not just a sovereign creator, but he is a personal God. That's, I think, what, what Moses is doing here by bringing these two words together, talking about God and talking about the Lord God, giving him that name. He's, he's helping us understand that this sovereign creator is also the personal God who the original hearers, as they heard the name the Lord, they would identify this God to be the one who had made the covenant with their father Abraham. Who had chosen Abraham and had been proactively at work through Abraham and his descendants. So in using this term, and by the way, the, this two-word term for God, the Lord God, is used 20 times in the book of Genesis, all of those times in chapters 2 and 3, in the context of the garden. So it's a combination, and, and the author here is helping us understand some things by doing that. Our God, the Lord God, is both sovereign creator, the one who spoke all that is into existence, and he is the personal Lord of his people. He's simultaneously holding all things together by the word of his power and with here, present with us in this room, accepting our praises, hearing our prayers and our petitions. Both of these aspects of God are brought together in the repeated dual name of the Lord God. Now look at verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now here, this is the first of what will be repeated several times throughout the book of Genesis. It's uh, called the Toledot structure. And what it, it just means that this is the generations of some some people. This is the segments that the book of Genesis has been divided into. And this is the first one. And the first one is of the generations of the heavens and the earth. Following that will be the generations of Adam and then Noah, the sons of Noah, Terah, etc. And it's talking about the, the line of specific people. But this first one has uh, a special chiastic structure to it. You see how it's, it started and it repeats the heavens and the earth? when they were created, and then the day that the Lord God made, the earth and the heavens, how it backs out. The center of the focal point there is the Lord God. 
And what the author is doing here is helping us connect this God of chapter 1, the sovereign creator, to being the Lord, the covenant-making God, with his people Israel. This is the same God. And that's very important. So we're, we're tying these two things together. And as we said before, man is the focal point of this passage, and humans are being set forth as the pinnacle of God's created efforts. Moses drives home the concept that mankind has a very special place in God's creation and in God's heart. And he drives this idea home in these verses, I think, like a carpenter sinking a nail into a rafter using four blows. So we will look at at this. We will look at the perfect order of this personal God through four different aspects. We see it in Adam's formation. We see it in Adam's location. We see it in Adam's vocation, his work. And we see it in the prohibition given to Adam. So those are the four hooks upon which we will hang this passage today. First of all, we see the personal nature of God's perfect order in Adam's formation. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land that was watering the whole face of the ground. God is dealing with his creation in a different way before he forms man than after. And the timing of the the formation of man here shows us the important role that God has designed for man to play in his creation. It seems as though God has put the emergence of plant life on hold until he makes Adam. It's like he pushed pause on his creative efforts until Adam is formed. And then after Adam is formed, he allows these these various plants and trees to spring into life. His holding all things together by the word of this power seems to look quite differently before he makes Adam than after. And the role that Adam will play is so important that God delays the plants and the bushes from springing up. In God's perfect order... Mankind is set forth as having a God-given dominion over all things. Kenny made reference to Psalm 8. And verse 6 of Psalm 8 says this, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So this is the high and lofty place that man, that man is given by God over the creation. God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates the the land and the water and the sky and he creates the birds and the sea creatures and the land animals and the creeping things and then he puts god he puts man as his vice regent over all of that creation on the earth it's a high and a lofty position that man is given here and the timing of adam's formation shows us the important role that we humans have been given in god's creation Next, let's look at the act of Adam's creation. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The raw materials that God uses to make Adam are pretty humble. It's dust of the earth. Nothing fancy about that. And you 
probably, if you like me, growing up in the 70s and 80s, you remember a, a band called Kansas, and they had a hit song called Dust in the Wind, right? All we are is dust in the wind. One of the verses goes like this. Now don't hang on. Nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky. It slips away, and all your money won't another minute buy. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. On some levels, that's pretty good theology, right? We are dust. We have been made by God with his hand, so to speak, scooping up some of the dust of the earth and like a potter with clay, forming man, forming Adam. Humble stuff. So we are not to take ourselves too seriously because when we die, when God ceases to, to, when he withholds his breath from us, we decompose back into the earth. We were taken from dust and we return to the dust. That's just the way it is. But on the other hand, the theology of that song leaves something very, very, very important out. We are much more than dust. For we are dust that has been formed by the hand of a sovereign creator and have had the breath of life breathed into us by our personal God. Do you see how intimate this is? He, it's as though he stoops down into this man, Adam, that he has just formed. And he gets face to face with him. And he exhales breath into Adam's nostrils. And at that point, Adam becomes a living creature. And over and over again in Genesis, all mammals that breathe that have the breath of life in them, are, are said to have that breath of life. And when God takes that breath of life away, we cease to exist. We die. But how we are different from the rest of the mammal world is that only man had God breathe the breath of life into his nostrils. So man is very special here. Adam is holding a very unique place in God's creation here because God is personally breathing into him the breath of life, which makes him alive. Now, God could have spoken, and Adam could have become a living creature just because a sovereign God had spoken, but in his wisdom, he gets much more personal than that. He exalts man under his created order, over it, subjects all things to man, and personally breathes into him the breath of life. So as you think about God, there's no other creature other than man who is made in God's image. And there's no other creature that had the breath of God personally breathed into it. So is our God distant? Is our God disengaged? Is he stingy? No. He's personally involved. He's close. He's generous. He gives to Adam the breath of life. Is it natural for you to think about God in this way? When you are confronted with what feels to you like your life is out of order, do you remind yourself that God is close, that He's personally invested, that He's available, that He's engaged, and that He's generous? Because this is the God that we are being explained in Genesis 2. 
This God is sovereign, but He's personal and He's invested. We have a personal God in whom we live, we move, and we have our being. And we see God's perfect order and His personal nature in Adam's formation. Secondly, we see the personal nature of God in His perfect order in Adam's location. Look with me at verse 8. Adam's location. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. Back in 1956, the Van Nuys, California News said there are three most important things about real estate. Location, 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 right? And what they're meaning is that people, when they're investing in property, they want to know what's the neighborhood like. Is it safe? Is it close to schools? Is it close to parks and green spaces and beauty and things like that? And here, God plants a garden for Adam. He could have placed him anywhere on the earth because his earth is a very good creation. But he seems to take special care here to plant a garden for Adam. Think of some of the most beautiful places that you have ever been. Think of lush green trees, lush grass, colorful flowers. This is, this is a, a, a picture of what it's like where God placed Adam. And this, this garden in which God placed Adam was a sanctuary. It was designed to be a place of beauty in which Adam could reflect on the beauty of the creation and see in it his creator. And where God would personally meet with him in the beauty of this creation. When I was a farmer and a rancher up in the uh, upper Midwest, and we would run our cattle on the national grasslands. There would be environmentalists that would come to the Forest Service meetings and would want to speak into how we ran the grazing of the cattle, the rotation of the pastures through. And they, they wanted to protect these little areas that they called their sanctuaries. It was places where they would go, where they would feel connected with nature they never really connected it to a sovereign God who made that, but they recognized the value of feeling close to something when you're in the midst of a beautiful creation. And they wanted that protected. In their eyes, cattle grazing through and removing grass that would then be springing up into new life another two weeks later, that was a bad thing to them. I think they kind of missed some of the good design of God's order in making cattle to come through and graze the grass so that that springs up fresh and new again. But they did recognize that it was a sanctuary. And that's what God has made here in the Garden of Eden. It's a sanctuary, a place for Adam to meet with his creator. It's a special dwelling place of God on earth, according to one commentator. And note that everything that Adam needs is right here in the garden. Look at verses 9 and 10. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. So everything that Adam needs is there. There are trees and plants that are beautiful for him to marvel at the the creative efforts of His sovereign God, loving God, personal God. 
the trees are good for food. So they're not just pleasing to the eyes, but they're good for food. They're good for Adam's existence. And there are true trees in the center of the garden that are given special mention here. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And there's much water. So everything that Adam needs in order to thrive himself and in order to have this garden continue to be a beautiful place is there. There's gold and precious stones and the presence of God himself. That's the most important part of what's in the garden. This is paradise. This is exactly what God had designed and in mind in his perfect order of placing Adam there. And we see God's personal nature in Adam's location. The Lord God loves man. He loves Adam. And he plants a garden to meet his needs. And he delights in creating something that we as humans take delight in. The colorful array of the flowers. The beautiful color and taste of the fruit. The refreshing nature of a, of a cool brook or this river that runs through is the water of life. God delights in creating something that we take delight in. Eden is a sanctuary designed by God to be a place where he is, his very good creation comes together for the benefit of man. This is good for man. And it is a display of his glory. And just as when he formed Adam and breathed into him the breath of life, imparting divine glory into Adam through that breath, there's divine glory being displayed here in the beauty and the extravagant nature of this provision for man in the garden. One commentator put it this way, this peculiar spot on earth, this inner circle, was to be man's residence. He was there to dwell. He was to meet with God, there to walk with God, there as in creation's palace, to take up his abode as creation's king and from his throne there to exercise his kingly dominion over an undefiled and happy earth. Our experience of God's creation on this earth, we can recognize the beauty, but it's still in its fallen state. And I think we have to work hard to understand just how good this location is for man. We have to work hard to erase from our mind the images of fallen creation and to try to allow the text to inform how good God's creation is here, how important man is in it, and how good the, the creation itself is for meeting man's needs and for, for causing him to thrive and to enjoy his relationship with the earth over whom he has been placed and with his creator under whom he is the vice-regent. We see God's perfect order and his personal nature in Adam's location. Thirdly, we see this personal nature of God's perfect order in Adam's vocation. Look with me at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Here we see God's intended purpose for Adam in the garden. Adam was placed there to work it and to keep it. And notice this good work is not ministry as we tend to define it, right? 
Adam is not there trying to help introduce other people to God and help them get their lives back in order. There's no other people at this point, and there's no, nothing out of order at this point. So Adam's ministry, and the words used here are that. Adam's ministry is to tend the garden. It's horticulture. It's agriculture. It's animal husbandry. It's hands-in-the-earth sorts of work. Sweat-inducing work, I would say. Even though there's no problems. And this is very, very important for us to understand, is given to man as part of God's good order in creation prior to the fall. So work is not a toilsome consequence of the fall. Work is given before the fall. And the same words used here to work it and to keep it, those show up in Numbers chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, talking about the Levites and the care that they are to take over the tabernacle. Numbers 3, 7 and 8 says this, They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. Same words, minister, keeping guard over. There's, there's this element that Adam is to be involved in hands-on ministry of the garden as his vocation. Eden is a sanctuary designed by God to be a place where man works for the benefit of God's very good creation and as a display of God's glory. Man is the head of the creation under God and is entrusted with the responsibility of tending it. And the word translated put in this verse could also be translated caused him to rest. The Lord God took the man and put him or caused him to rest in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So think back a week ago when Kenny was helping us understand that we are people created by God to find our rest in Him. And God here places Adam in the garden, causing him to rest in the garden in the presence of God Himself, working and tending the garden. So our work is to be an act of rest. It's to be restful work. And we're to work a workful rest. It doesn't mean a lack of activity. Rest is not, as Kenny said, emptying your mind of everything, but it's actually pulling back and filling your mind as much as you can with God. And in this work, that's the mindset that we are to have. We are to be resting in God, entering into and maintaining a constant conversation with Him as we put our hands to the task of work and ministry supporting and fulfilling God's perfect order that we have been given. And I'll be the first to admit that most of us don't understand work in this way. There's a couple of ways that we can fall into a ditch on this one, right? Either we see work as an evil thing to be avoided at all costs and we just spend our day on the couch. Or we go on the other direction and we actually see work as being defining for us as our identity and we make an idol out of our work at the expense of paying attention to the other priorities that God has entrusted to our care. We become workaholics. 
We give it primary place. And this good thing that God has created called work becomes a primary thing. Not a means by which we worship, but a thing to which we worship. A contemporary preacher has said this about America. He says, We have become a generation of people who worship our work, who work at our play, and who play at our worship. We become a generation of people who worship our work, who work at our play, and who play at our worship. Does that describe us? Does that describe you? God's perfect order in paradise contains meaningful work done as an act of worship unto Him. We're designed by God to conduct our work as an act of worship. Being mindful of God, depending on Him for the strength required, depending on Him to do the right thing in the right order so that our work is productive, so that resources are managed faithfully, so that we don't end up wasting effort, energy, time. We're to be faithfully stewarding all that we have been entrusted. How are you doing in your approach to work? In light of this definition, does it look like this? If not, what needs to change? Do you need to put some more toil in your rest? 1 Timothy 5.8 says this, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a strong indictment. Providing for our household, providing for the family, providing for our relatives requires work. Do you need to put more toil in your rest? Or do you need to put more rest in your toil? Maybe you're on the opposite end where all you do is toil. You work and you work. Jesus pulled into town and there were a pair of sisters called Martha and Mary who welcomed him into their house. And Martha was the one who was, according to the text, distracted with much serving. Where Mary sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to him. And Martha became indignant and said, Jesus, don't you care that she's not helping me? Look at everything that needs to be done. Tell her to help. And Jesus looks at Martha and says, Mary has chosen the good part, and it won't be taken from her. There's a time for work. There's a time for rest. There's a necessity to sit at the feet of Jesus and to allow Him to speak into our lives. So those are the two ditches, right? We either don't work at all and avoid it at all costs, or we work all the time without giving a thought to God. What is it in order that it would, what, what, what changes are required in your life in order to restore God's perfect order for work in your life? And finally, we see the personal nature of God's perfect order in Adam's prohibition. Look with me at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now God is here with man in the garden. This is a personal conversation. 
Don't miss that. This is the sovereign Lord of the universe with Adam in the garden, personally speaking with him. And he says, like a caring provider, he says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. You see all these trees that I've made for you, all the beautiful fruit, they are for your enjoyment. And you may surely eat of all of these. And he continues, but this one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of it. For in the day that you do, you'll die. God makes his will known to Adam. And to Adam, a moral agent with the freedom to choose obedience or disobedience, God loves us and wants what's best for us. And in order for us to express free love to him, that requires a choice. For him not to have given Adam a choice in the garden would be for him to have made Adam as a robot who didn't have a choice. But that is not how he has made humanity. We have the choice to obey and to enter into the rest of eternal life with God or to go our own way and to decide on our own terms what is right for us. God is our sovereign creator and as such, He gets alone the right to tell us what is good for us. And we are to take Him at His word and rest in that. And even if it feels like a mystery to us or even if it looks as the thing that He has prohibited it would be good for us, we have to trust that He knows best. And that he would never withhold any good thing from you because you are precious to him. God loves Adam. He's made lavish provision for Adam in the garden. Given him plenty to eat. Plenty of water to drink. Everything he needs to thrive according to the marching orders he's been given. And this fence that God puts up, this one prohibition, is also very good. It's part of the very good order of God's creation. We've read the rest of the story and we know that Adam disregarded God's prohibition. And now the entire world, as a result, is out of order. Man has been cursed. Woman has been cursed. And we'll see down the road that that makes our work that much more hard. Creation itself has been cursed. It's out of order. It's broken. And our personal God knew that this would happen. And He planned from eternity to send His Son. And His Son is one whose life was in perfect order. He completely obeyed and fulfilled the law to the letter of it. Listen to what Jesus said. In John 14, 31, he says, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Do you want to abide in the love of God? Follow his perfect order. By obeying his commandments. Unlike Adam, Jesus fulfilled his ministry. He completed his vocation. Everything, every aspect of his life was in perfect order. Nothing was out of order. 
Unlike Adam, Jesus submitted to His Father when He was in the garden. Wrestling there in prayer on the eve before He laid down His life and shed His blood, His perfect blood, blood from a man whose life was perfectly in order, in order to make full payment for the sins of you and I whose lives are in various states of disorder. And by doing that, He has now opened up the possibility that we in Christ can have God's perfect order restored to us. That our relationship with this personal God can be restored so that we can return back to this beautiful state of perfect order designed by our personal God. That's His original intention. That's why and how He designed humanity. And now in Christ, He is redeeming the world. He is still doing a creative work. He's doing something new. He's still in the business of creating the miracle of faith, the miracle of life in the hearts and minds of people who trust Him. He breathes into them the Holy Spirit at the point of regeneration. And He begins a good work, which, by the way, He has promised to complete on the day of Jesus Christ. Begins that good work in us of restoring God's good order in our lives. And the Word says, we're going back to the garden. Revelation 22 says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Do you hear the elements of the garden there in Revelation 22? The new heavens and the new earth. Man will be restored. The river of the water of life is there. The tree of life is there. The leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. And that's us. We will be ultimately and fully healed. Order that now lacks from our life will be completely restored to us. And we will take our designed place in God's perfect order, ruling and reigning with Him forever. And ever. What a glorious end this will be. But you and I are stuck here in the middle for now, right? God is at work. We know the toil of living in a fallen world. We know the challenges that that presents. And yet He, if you are in Christ, has made you alive together with Him and is in the process of restoring order in your life. Your standing in Christ is one of perfect order before God. But your experience in this world is one of increasing order by degrees. A few steps forward and sometimes a few steps back. This is what God has originally intended for us and He's promised to get us there. So in light of that, let me ask a couple of questions to reflect on for a for a couple of minutes. 
How could you let God restore his order in your life? What order in your life is lacking today that God is willing to restore for you if you would but let him? What does it look like for you to surrender to him in that way? Secondly, how could you rest more completely in God's personal nature? God being a personal God who loves you, who has created you for good work and called you and equipped you for that. As you hear God's perfect order being put in by His personal nature, as you sit in that and rest in that, what does greater faithfulness look like in your life in light of who God has made us to be? Let's sit in that for a couple of minutes in silent prayer, and I'll close us in a minute. Father, we bow before you the one who sovereignly spoke all that is into existence, personally breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. Lord, we worship you for who you are. We thank you for your grand and perfect order of your design for the created universe and for the role that we, your children, have to play in that. Thank you, Lord, for your wise plan of redemption that is restoring order to our lives even today. And Lord, if there are any among us who have yet to surrender to you to express complete faith and trust in you and you alone for right standing before God, I pray, Lord, for your Spirit's powerful work in their lives. Call them, Lord. And for those, Lord, who are here um, walking along, wrestling against the disorder that still exists in our lives, I pray for your spirit to bring a, a fresh breath of power, of resolve, of rest, so that our lives can grow in faithfulness, whether that means we are to work or whether that means we are to rest whether the balance between work and rest is to be more faithfully expressed in a multitude of ways in our lives. Lord, show each one of us what faithful looks like. And by your grace, empower us, I pray, to move in that direction. I thank you for each one here, Lord, and it is our privilege as your children to, to serve you at your pleasure. So, Father, have your way among us. Be glorified to work in us and through us as you continue to build your church which you promised the gates of hell shall not prevail against. We take you at your word, we rest in you, and we commit to you ourselves. Be pleased to dwell in us and with us and to accomplish your plans and purposes through us. In Jesus' name we pray.